going on with Israel. But there was very little in these prophecies about the future of the church. Now, the second problem had to do with a certain characteristic of the Old Testament prophecies. And that is, that was the mingling of near-fulfillment events with far-fulfillment events that would be accomplished at the end of the age. And a lot of times, the near-fulfillment events would actually uh, uh, kind of be a, 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 a foretelling of what was going to happen at the end of time. But, there, you know, there was a mingling of these things in, in the minds of those who had come to know Christ. So, that it's, you know, it's not a problem with the Lord, of course, because He can see all things simultaneously. Uh, the Lord sees things past, present, and future, but we, we don't. We can see, for example, we can look out at two mountain peaks that look, about, they look like they're right next to each other. And yet in between those two mountain peaks, there's this huge valley. And that's how the prophets saw things. They could see all of these things, but you didn't know the distance between those prophecies. And I hope that makes a little sense as to the other problem that they had before the writing of the New Testament. So now Jesus himself, when we read the Gospels, Jesus himself had clarified some of the many questions that believers had, especially in his great Olivet Discourse. Now, you all all do know what the Olivet Discourse is. It's simply the sermon that Jesus preached on the Mount of Olives before he goes into Jerusalem to be crucified and to die for the sins of men. There on, on the Mount of Olives began this discourse, this message, this uh, sermon, as it were, given by Jesus to his disciples. You find it in Matthew 24. You'll find it in Mark chapter 13. You'll find it in Luke 21. But even these uh, contain minglings of near and far fulfillments. Take, for example, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. with the end of the age fulfillments, for example. So the, the near fulfillment was 70 A.D. Jesus had said, you know, there, not a stone is going to stay, you know, upon each other. This, this place is going to get destroyed. And yet he was also speaking in that, in those, uh, in, in that one Olivet Discourse, the, uh, speaking of other events to happen, but not then in 70 A.D., but actually at the end of the age. So they were hearing this. So there, you know, there was some, somewhat that... Uh, Confusion. The church age was only partially explained by Jesus during his earthly ministry, and that in the form of parables which could not be fully comprehended until after his resurrection and his ascension. But he does say something in John 16, which I'd like for you to see. And he says there in verse 13, he says, However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And notice the last phrase, and he will tell you things to come. So Jesus was preparing them. There's going to come a time when the Spirit of God is going to speak to you and tell you the things that are yet to come. That's the book of Revelation. That's my secret to you. It's the book of Revelation. He will tell you things to come. And the Holy Spirit did, in fact, through various epistles, reveal some things that were to come. 
But they had to do mostly with general trends in the world that would affect the church, especially in the last days. So here's some general trends affecting the church. Now I've just put the, the, uh, uh, the scripture references up here, but you can turn there. I'm going to read them to you. First Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this about the end times and the last days. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, or in the, la- in the late, uh, or the last days, I should say, some will depart, notice, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Now that is taking place today. I don't want to spend time on every little point there, but I think we, we just have to read it and say, you know what, these things are happening today. There are a lot of people that are just saying, yeah, yeah, I don't, you know, I don't believe all that stuff in the Bible. And, uh, you know, I went to church when I was, since I was a little boy, and uh, but now I've grown up and... You know, go leave it, you know. Or these deceiving spirits, doctrines of demons. We live in a, a very uh, corrupt religious time, you know, where people are just saying, you have to accept everybody's beliefs. Now, Jesus told us, you know, we're not to accept anybody's beliefs, but what he teaches us. But we are to reach out to them and show them what the truth is, because Jesus said he came to reveal the truth. He came to bring us the truth. Uh, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having our conscience seared with a hot iron. In other words, so many people have no remorse, no, no feeling or anything in their hearts uh, toward the burdens of others. And then, of course, the other issues there. But 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-5. through 5. Let me not uh, get sidetracked here. But 2 Timothy 3, verses 1-5 through 5 says, But know this, Paul says, that in the last days, perilous times will come. Dangerous times. Dangerous times is what he says. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, Uh, which means arrogant, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And from such people turn away. So Paul says, you know, these these people are going to look like they have some kind of godliness, but they actually deny the power of God. They deny the power of God. They deny the presence of the Holy Spirit. They deny the person of Jesus Christ. That's a form of godliness, but it has no power behind it. And then in 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 to 20, even John says, little children, it is the last hour. Now, he said that 20, uh, I mean, uh, 2,000 years ago. It's the last hour. What is he saying to us? He's saying we need, you know, the last days began when the church was revealed and, and came into being. He says, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. Well, if he was saying that 2,000 years ago, don't you think there's enough Antichrist today to let us know that Jesus could come at any moment? Because the Antichrist 
spirit is already here. But notice how it's affected the church because he says in verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. Now that's significant, folks. Because there are a lot of people today who profess with their mouth that they know Jesus, but they don't know Him. Or they profess with their mouth that they may be believers, but they're not really believers. And Jesus, remember what Jesus said, He said, You shall know them by their fruit. They were, or they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One and you know all things. Now, literally, that last phrase, you know all things, means you all will know this. This is the construction of the Greek. You all will know this. So none of these had to do with specific events. Notice general trends affecting the church. And the trends were already evident during the time of the early church, so they could have well considered they were in the last days. Now, there was a lot of, uh, revealed in the epistles, which are the letters of the, of the apostles, uh, the letters of the writers of the, uh, of the New Testament. There was a lot revealed in the epistles concerning the actual return of Jesus Christ for His church. Especially the great resurrection and the rapture passages of 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 and, and 1 Corinthians 15, which we'll touch on in, in, in a little while. But uh, there were a number of less extensive sections. For example, there were st- statements like this in, uh, in Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, dealing with the return of Christ for His church. Uh, Paul says in Philippians 3, 20 and 21, For our citizenship is in heaven. Uh, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will, notice, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to His glorious body, according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. And you tie that, of course, into the thought of, 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 of what uh, Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that we shall all be changed in the, in, in, in a, in the twinkling of an eye, in a, in a, just in a moment, boom, in the twinkling of an eye. So we'll, we'll, we'll get to that passage in a little bit. But that's the whole thing. We're going to be transformed. Paul is speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And, and I guess a lot of people just think that, you know, this kind of talk is, is too weird. But then again, do we really trust everything that God tells us? You know, we spent two whole years, or actually we spent a whole year, maybe it was two years, in the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, showing very clearly how God created the world in six real days and rested on the seventh. And He didn't do it billions of years ago, just thousands of years ago. And the Bible says that, that, and we believe that, but yet there's a lot of ways to, to see the reliability of that. So if God says, you know, through the, the apostles, as He inspires them in the, through His Holy Spirit, hey, listen, we're going to be, our bodies are going to be transformed. We don't have to spiritualize that. Because when we begin to read about what, 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 uh, uh, what Jesus said in, in John 14, as we'll see in a moment, and what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians 15, changes are going to happen like that. When Jesus comes for His church. 
Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Whoops, we're going to hit it. Come back. Okay. Titus 2, 11 through 13. Paul says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. We are to be looking for, looking for, and uh, for, the, for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. So all in all, the church needed to sort out and they needed to harmonize all the remaining unfulfilled prophecies of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. Those given by Jesus during His earthly ministry and those given through the apostles to equip them with assurance and understanding concerning God's great purposes for His creation in the ages to come. See, we got to remember one thing. God did not create us when He did, and then He said, Okay, I got the world going. I got you all living and and, uh, breathing and, uh, you know, having all kinds of things going on with each other. Okay, I'm I'm done. I'll see you all later. Whatever happens at the end, it's all up to you. That's not God. That's not the way He does things. That's not the way He did this. He created us. And, and then, of course, he dealt, he, he dealt with the problem that happened in Genesis 3, which was, of course, the problem with sin, the fall of man. And he immediately says, I'm going to deal with it. The seed of the woman. And when he said that, he was saying it to Satan directly in the serpent. The seed of the woman is going to crush the head of that serpent. He was speaking of Jesus Christ, speaking of His only begotten Son. He has a purpose for creation in the ages to come. And this is the primary purpose of the book of Revelation. The primary purpose of the book of Revelation is to unveil, it is to lift a veil, it is to reveal the mystery of the ages. Because God isn't done yet, but He's almost done. But He isn't done. And we need to see that His hand has been there all the way through. And and He hasn't done anything out of confusion because He's seen the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. Because our God is great and our God is merciful and our God is wonderful and He's marvelous and He's he's everything that that the Word of God says He is. So consider then, one more time, what was said in Revelation chapter 1, verses... One through three, the revealing of the mystery of the ages, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. In other words, they can happen at any time. This is an imminent revelation. I'll talk about imminency in a little bit. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and, who, and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it. And here it is. For the time is near. The time is near. When was that written? Oh, almost 2,000 years ago. The time is near. And so we transition from the things that John had seen, which is the past tense, 
and the visions of Jesus in his risen state and the things which are, which had to be the churches, to the things which must be hereafter. And this is Revelation 4 verse 1 now. So we're, now we're back to our text. And I want you to notice a couple of things. Notice on, on, on this particular verse, I've highlighted the first three words and highlighted the last two. Because in the Greek, those two phrases are exactly the same. And you remember, I think, that we, we looked at that in the first uh, few studies. It was the, the, the Greek words, metatauta. And it will be up here in just a moment. After these things, I looked, John says, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. So there's metatauta. The the one verse begins and ends with the same phrase, metatauta. So that's important. That makes that phrase very important. After these things. And so that, that phrase, metatauta, which in Revelation 1.19 is actually repeated twice in Revelation... And then is, is, is repeated twice in Revelation 4 verse 1, I should say. Because we read Revelation 1 verse 19 earlier. Now it's, it's stated again. And these are the three times we see that, that statement. Metatauta, making this the appropriate starting point for the third division or section of Revelation, uh, which is our outline in verse 19, which is the things that will take place after this. So after these things, after, after this, the Lord, through John the Apostle, is making sure that we understand where this fits in his outline. All that follows comes after the messages to the churches. Now one very significant thing to note is that the word church, ecclesia, the word church is not mentioned again in the book of Revelation. It is not mentioned again. Now, from here on, Revelation refers to saints, And brethren, to the children of Israel, to a great multitude of believers in the tribulation period, but there will be no further reference to a church or even a group of churches. And there's reason for that. The church is out of the way now, as we will see as we get into chapter 4. But there's a few things that we need to see about the outline for the rest of the book of Revelation. First of all, chapters 4 through 18. So this is a a large chunk of of this book. Chapters 4 through 18 deal with the events leading up to the second coming of Jesus Christ, which includes the seven years of tribulation. Chapters 4 through 18 deal with the events leading up to the second coming of Jesus Christ, including the seven years of tribulation. Chapter 19 deals with the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, though it's not mentioned there in chapter 19, we'll get there one of these years, but when we get there, uh, it won't be mentioned, but we know that that's where the church is. we'll, We'll talk about that when we get there. Chapter 20 now deals with the, uh, 
with the aftermath of the return, the second coming of Christ, and the setting up of the kingdom of God on this earth, and chapters 21 and 22, they deal with the new heaven, or I should say the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, and the new earth. Now, as we get into chapter 4, we need to remember that we're going to have to look at things from a whole different perspective. Because we've always seen things from the perspective of the world and from the perspective of where we are. Even as believers, we are where we are, right? But now we have to have a heavenly perspective. And that heavenly perspective is, is, is what John is now having and what John is now expressing to us, he has. He has a new perspective. It's a heavenly perspective. And so as the church age comes to an end, John sees a door that's open in heaven. And this is another significant aspect of the vision given to John. An open door. This is the only place where such a vision is given, except when John saw the second coming of Jesus Christ on a white horse. If you, if you turn to Revelation 19 verse 11... Notice what it says. I saw heaven open. Now remember, it's open in chapter 4. And then we see it open again in chapter 19. I saw, uh, now I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Now this has, there's an implication here that the door was open in chapter 4 for this very purpose of John being brought into heaven to see this revelation. But it was also for John to be as a type of the church to be taken into heaven before all of the judgments begin that we will see in chapter 6 and following. Because by the way, chapters 4 and 5, and I didn't mention it up here, but chapters 4 and 5 are... are, are, are really together in in what we see. We see John in heaven. It's in chapter 6 that the judgments begin. And I want to talk about chapters 4 and 5 in just in a little in a little while, but but you know that that's just kind of a subdivision as we enter into the judgments that are going to come in chapter 6 and following. So the significance is that during the tribulation period on earth there is no reference to the door of heaven being opened. It's as if it was open for John and the church, and then it isn't open again until Revelation 19. So consider that, if you will. So there's no reference to the door of heaven being opened, and the words of Revelation 19 might indicate that the door has, in fact, been closed during that period of time. Now, there's another point of importance to mention when we talk about doors especially open doors. It wasn't too long ago that we studied about the, we studied the um, letter to the Church of Philadelphia. And the Church of Philadelphia was given an assurance by Jesus. An assurance and a promise by Jesus. Consider that. Revelation 3, verse 8. Jesus speaking to the Church of, of, uh, of Philadelphia. He says, I know your works. And then he says, See, I have said before you, an open door and no one can shut it for you have a little strength 
have kept my word and have not denied my name. But then I want you to notice something else. Two verses later, in Revelation 3, verse 10, he says, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. So now think, think, think about this. The Lord had promised the Philadelphian church an open door. On the other hand, he had warned the Laodiceans, the last church in the seven churches of Asia Minor, he warned the Laodiceans that he was knocking on their closed door. An open door, the Church of Philadelphia. The closed door, it was the closed door of the Laodiceans. And Jesus knocked on it. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He who hears and opens, he who hears me and opens the door, I will come in. Now he shows John the door opened in heaven. And he invites him to enter. He says, come up here. Remember, the church age has now, for all intents and purposes, come to an end. And then a voice like a trumpet speaks to him saying, come up here. John's perspective was about to change. That's what I mentioned earlier about a heavenly perspective. His perspective was now about to change. The invitation came from Christ himself, who had preceded John in heaven. So, listen, it was Jesus from heaven saying to John, come up here. And the voice is the same as mentioned in chapter 1. Because we can go back to Revelation chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. I know it's kind of small, but you have your Bibles in front of you. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. To Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, to Laodicea. But then we see in Revelation 1, verse 18, that it says, I am he who lives and was dead. So do we know who this is? I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. And so it was Jesus who was calling John up into heaven. So this was stated so that we wouldn't have any doubt as to who was calling John, and who calls the church, and who calls us. And at the same time, he was taken by the Spirit through the open door. He was taken by the Spirit through the open door. Consider how similar this event is to the promise of our Lord. I think one of my favorite, favoritest passages in the Bible. <laughs> I probably mentioned a whole lot of them, huh? But this is one of them. 
It's John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Come up here. Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Come. Take of the waters of life freely. Come. Come to the church of Laodicea. Come and and buy bread without price, without money. But come. John had already come. See, that's the point of this whole statement. But I started out with, earlier on when we began our study about John you know, be, being told, come up here, the dynamic. Jesus says, come up here, yet it's Jesus who brings him up there. Because he'd already come. Have you come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Because if you've come... then that invitation has already been given and it's been made secure. So that when Jesus comes, whenever He comes, whether we know what day or hour, we don't know, do we? The Bible tells us that very clearly we don't know the day or the hour, but we need to be ready at all times. When He comes, guess what? You've already come. Now He fulfills His part and takes And catches us up. That's the idea here. Is God able to do that with His church throughout this whole world? Of course He is. Just as He was able to create this world, you know, the universe in six days, the way He said He did, the way that Jesus did, because the Bible teaches very clearly that Jesus is the Creator. If he can do that in thousands of years without needing billions of years of time to kind of let everything just haphazardly fall into place, then he certainly can come to this earth when he wants to come and when he's ready to come and catch up his church the way he says he will. Too many people today spiritualize this. Well, he just, he's just trying to encourage you, you know, just to come to him and, you know. But these all these things, it's a little hard to imagine it happening. Why? Do we believe that nothing is impossible for God? I hope we do. The Bible tells us, with God all things are possible. He can do it. We've got to remember that, that God is from a whole different realm than we are. I mean, Jesus was a UFO, when you think about it. 
unidentified to a lot of people. But his disciples saw him when he ascended to heaven in the clouds. Nothing is impossible with God. So the Apostle John then is representative of the church in heaven after the church age and before the tribulation period. If indeed that's what we find happening in chapter 4 verse 1. After coming off of what we've learned to be that which is present, which is the church, and now we're looking at what is to come. And you can say that he serves, that John serves as a type of the church that is taken through that open door. Now Paul was given wisdom through the Holy Spirit about encouraging the church that this was going to happen as well. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, the, a very classic passage concerning the, uh, the rapture of the church. I want to talk about the rapture a little bit more, so I, I'm defined it totally, if, if that's a kind of a strange word to you. But nonetheless, this is the, the event that we're talking about. Notice what, what, what uh, it says in, in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. But Paul says, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. Now, isn't that a wonderful statement that, that Paul makes? I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be without wisdom or understanding concerning those who have fallen asleep. In other words, those who have died as believers, uh, lest you sorrow as those who have no hope, as others who have no hope. I don't want you to be ignorant and, and, and then all of, a, all of a sudden have this sorrow as if you don't know what's happened to them. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again... Even so, God will bring with Him those who sleep in Jesus. God will bring with Him, it says. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend. From heaven with a shout. That's the voice of Jesus. With the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. The trumpet that John spoke of. And the dead in Christ will rise first. There's an order to what the way the Lord has prepared this. The dead in Christ will rise first. That's obvious. Why? Because they're already dead. So they're going to be the first ones that people are concerned with. What's going to happen to them? Well, the dead in Christ will rise. Why? Because God promised, I should say, Jesus promised a resurrection. He promised it when He went to Bethany, uh, concerned about His friend Lazarus. But He was more concerned than the sisters thought He was, because they thought He wasn't concerned at all, because He came late. He came a day after He died. Or at least a day after he would be considered completely dead. <laughs> and they said to him, if you had just been here, Lazarus would not have died. So they, they really trusted that Jesus had the power to heal. If you had been here, he would not have died. And Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, he's going to live again. So he goes to that tomb and he, and, and, and he has him move the stone out of the way. I'm sure they thought he was crazy. 
And he spoke into that, into that tomb and he said, Lazarus, come forth. Now folks, he had to say Lazarus or else a lot of people have been rising from the dead that day. He had to be very specific. Lazarus, come forth. And this is how he's going to call us because that's the voice of Jesus in Revelation. Come up here. And Lazarus came out of the tomb. Mummified, and, you know, all tied up. Because they had to... They pulled on the thing and he just put and finally came out of those. And he was alive. You know, a lot of people don't realize this, but it's, a, it's kind of a sad story too because you know what? Lazarus had to die again. But what a beautiful thing and a beautiful thought that Jesus would take his friend and through his friend show that he is the resurrection and the life. That Jesus is indeed the one who has power over life and death. The dead in Christ will rise first and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together. Caught up together. Harpazo in the Greek. Snatched away. I mean, that's as that's a strong a word that you can use. Snatched away. You ever snatch something from somebody? Take it, you know, just grab it right away and just pull it right out of their hand. Her puzzle. Later on in the Latin uh, translation of the New Testament, the word was not her puzzle. Obviously, it was in Latin. It was a it was a word that uh, was the basis for the word rapture in the English. So that's why it became this event became the rapture of the church. And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So all of us, the whole of the body of Christ, risen, caught up together, as it were, the dead and the living. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. What did Jesus say? And you will always be where I am. To always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. It is a comfort to know things from that heavenly perspective. It is a comfort to know what Jesus Christ is going to accomplish on that day when He comes for His church. But then we have to know and get and have revealed to us the heavenly purpose, and that's verse 2. And we're going to just kind of get into verse 2 a little bit today. And it says, immediately, John said, I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. The word immediately, by the way, must not be taken lightly. It, it is another indication of the event that has been described. John was instantaneously transported into the presence of God and before his throne instantaneously, immediately, the English word, the old English word is straight away. Straight away caught up. Immediately caught up. Instantaneously brought before His throne. And that is what Paul teaches us. And we need to take note of this reminder by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 52. 
Where Paul says, now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So if you remember back a little bit where he talks about being transformed, we have to be transformed from the flesh or from the fleshly to the spiritual, as it were. And so he says, the flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption uh, inherit incorruption. So he says, behold, I tell you a mystery. Here's another mystery that's being revealed. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. What is sleep in the scriptures? Death. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Changed. In a moment. In the twinkling of an eye. That wasn't a twinkle. That was a major blink. But we have twinkles. The twinkling of an eye. Sometimes you're not even aware of it. But if you just sit for a minute and say, Oh, that's a twinkle. When you think about it, you see the twinkle. In the twinkling of an eye. Now, they've measured twinkles. I don't know why I'm calling it a twinkle. They've measured twinklings. Uh, the speed of them. And I, you know, I don't know what the number is. I don't even think it's important. But they, they, it's pretty fast. Yeah. Is fast. That's how we're going to change. From the corruptible into the incorruptible. At the last trumpet, oh, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. He says it twice. We shall be changed. And the word is very clear that there is a transformation metamorphosis as it were but a change and John for this moment for this vision for this revelation was translated in both space and time to the throne of God and to the end of the age and what he saw he was commanded to declare he wasn't told John this is too rich for you you better not tell anybody you heard them or something oh he says go You need to let people know. This is the revelation. Now you better let them know. It's revealed. It needs to be known. He saw a throne. And one who sat on the throne. And it is of necessity to point out that the word throne... Are you ready? You've got to write this down. This is part of your notes. You're going to have a test later. It is of necessity to point out that the word throne is used 14 times in this chapter alone. 14 times while it is used 46 times total in the book of Revelation. And depending on what translation, it's either 47 or 45, but it's 46. (laughs) We just settled for 46. But nonetheless, think about that. 46 times the word throne is used in the book of Revelation. 14 of those are in this chapter alone. That's spread out through 22 chapters. In, In chapter 4... Fourteen times the word throne is used. And the emphasis is clear. The emphasis is clear. God is in complete control. God is in complete control. The throne speaks of God's majesty and of God's sovereignty. God is sovereign. God is majestic. God 
is in control. God is in charge. And, and, and I, want, I want to draw your attention to this thought that, uh, you know, a, a lot of people that talk about prophecy issues always point to, man, what's going on with Islam, what's going on with, you know, with Islamic fundamentalism. And, it, you know, we need to understand, we need to know. But it's, it's almost like we're just kind of always focusing all of, all, all of these things and, you know, demon worship and, and you know, uh, Satan worship and, and all kinds of other things. And everybody kind of gets bogged down and we're kind of looking for demons under rocks and whatnot. You know, we're going here, we're going there. Ooh, you know, it's, like, it's like, oh, man, we've got to be, you know, we got to be, uh, the, you know, what, what they used to call those guys? Uh, uh, Ghostbusters, you know, kind of fighting them. Hey, do you want to know something? As soon as the messages of Revelation, or I should say the messages of Jesus to the churches, is done, the first thing that John is taken to see is not all of the bad things in all the world that's going on. The first thing he's taken to see is the throne of God. He says, listen, John, I'm in control. And you can rejoice in that. You can rejoice in the fact that I'm in control. Instead of looking for evidence of Antichrist and wickedness and evil and hatred in this world, our first look at the end times is always to be on the victory that we have in Jesus Christ. The future is secure, you see, for the believer in Jesus Christ. Now, we don't want the pendulum to swing the other way and say, Oh, all right, we have victory in Christ, so we don't have to do anything or worry about anything in the world. No, that's going on in the wrong direction. We need to, we need to stay focused on doing those things that honor the Lord and, and also, listen, and also looking for His return. And, and rejoicing in it. Rejoicing that Jesus Christ is coming again. This whole idea of being at the throne, and we're going to, you know, we're going to actually conclude the chapter next week. This is just the introduction for it. But, but the whole thing has to be that focus in chapters 4 and 5 of the throne of God, that God is in control, and that we're to worship Him, that we're to give Him the glory, that He's got to, to receive all of the, wor- of, of the honor and glory, because He's worthy of it. And, and, and it talks a lot about that in chapters 4 and 5. God is worthy. He is worthy to receive glory, honor, power, and all. He's worthy of it from us. He's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of all of these things because the victory is ours in Jesus Christ. He's worthy. Psalm 24, verses 7 through 10. Listen to this. Psalm 24, 7 through 10. Lift up your heads, O you gates. And be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up your everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Listen, we are to rejoice that God has this thing under control. That God has, God has everything in His hands. You know, remember that old, uh, you know, the, I guess it was uh, kind of an old gospel song. He's got the whole world in his hands. Well, you know, he does. That, that's the reality of it. You know, he's well, got the whole in his hands. Well, believe it. He does. He has the whole world. He's got the whole of the universe. The, the whole of his creation is in his hands. Are you thankful 
for that. Are you thankful? Kind of a springboard into our next study is just this quick little six reasons for this pre-tribulation rapture that we've been talking a little bit about. I'm going to kind of conclude this next week going into the last part, and then we're going to conclude the whole of the chapter next week, because there's only 11 verses in this chapter. But there's six reasons for, the, for understanding this pre-tribulation rapture the, the rapture. the first thing is that not one time is the church mentioned. I think we've already talked about that. Not one time is the church mentioned in a Bible text, uh, actually anywhere in a Bible text discussing the tribulation. The church is not mentioned. And secondly, in all the writings of Paul, the church is never mentioned in connection with the tribulation or with wrath to come. Thirdly, the church has already been judged at Calvary. Therefore, the purpose of, when you know that the purpose of tribulation is judgment, the church doesn't have to go in, in any way, shape, or form through any other tribulation or any other judgment. The church has already been judged. The church was judged at Calvary. And Jesus took the judgment upon himself. And then the pictures uh, that we find throughout the scriptures, especially the Old Testament, pictures of Enoch, who was taken by God. Uh, Noah, of course, in the, in the ark, in the flood. Lot, when he was uh, you know, delivered out of Sodom and Gomorrah, and, and so on. There's other, other types, but they're all Bible types that picture the, uh, this pre-tribulation idea of before the tribulation period of seven years, the church is taken out of the way. Uh, and then... Uh, Revelation 19 pictures the church in heaven during the tribulation. That's what I meant when I said that uh, we'll see, uh, even though it's not mentioned, but we'll see uh, uh, something to that effect. And then lastly, the coming of Christ for his saints is always pictured as sudden and unexpected, which means it is imminent. The coming of Jesus Christ is imminent. In other words, there's not another thing that has to happen before that happens. Now, some things may happen, but they don't have to happen before the coming of Jesus for his church. That's what imminency is. The imminent return of Jesus is that it can happen at any moment. That is why the church thought that he could come at any time in the first century, that he could come. I mean, Paul talks about it. John wrote about it. So they were all ready. They they were looking. It could happen then. It, it, It didn't then. But it could happen now. 2,000 years later is a significant number when you consider, you know, the, the timing of things in the Lord's uh, understanding of things and the way that the Lord has brought us to understand these things. So that's, that's uh, you know, kind of our, our springboard into chapter 4. And as I said, next week we're going to go through the, it all. And I'll, and I'll give a little bit more information just as, as to our understanding of of the uh, of the rapture of the church, and then we we're going to go on because you see uh, one thing that I didn't mention earlier, and I wanted to, and uh, we're going to just close with this. But uh, so I, I, I've mentioned a couple of times tonight that there are those who even in the church don't don't believe you know in the rapture of the church. Honestly, there are some who believe that the rapture will happen the mid you know, midway through the seven years, and others that believe at the end, and we won't talk about those right now 
But uh, there are just some people, even in the church, that don't believe at all that there's a rapture because they, they want to spiritualize everything. But the problem is that when they do that, they've taken out the, the biggest portion of understanding Bible prophecy to begin with, and that is they do not see Israel as important. And yet we cannot have Bible prophecy and understanding of Bible prophecy without the nation of Israel. Because if we are to base all of those near fulfillments and far fulfillments of the Old Testament prophets as we spoke of earlier, there has to be an Israel. When we get into chapter 4, I should say into chapter 6 of the book of Revelation, time and time and time and time again, you're going to see the connections to the prophets and all of it dealing with Israel. Because Israel still has yet to have seven years of, of, of being dealt with over certain things. And we'll talk about that. That comes out of the book of Daniel, which we are going to be working with as we work toward uh, our, our understanding of all of the book of Revelation. Okay, I've said enough. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we bless you and we praise you for the joy that you give.